finished singing, What Child Is This? And many of you are probably asking right now, what pastor is this? Um, I feel like as I get started this morning, I'd, I'd like to offer a disclaimer. Um, and, and that is that this is not my normal time slot. Um, and usually the announcements are a little more exciting. The, um, the good news is preaching or getting the opportunity to preach every odd year, I have, I have lots of time to prepare. And so, so this message comes to you with um, significant preparation. As I look back over the past year, year and a half or so, what I'm going to share with you this morning has to do with what I have observed. And... Um, about all of us, and certainly myself included. Um, And in that observation, just want to share a little bit about what what Lisa and I have experienced over the past year or so. One of our therapy mechanisms was to walk or to hike, and that, that was restorative for us in lots of different ways to be able to do that. There was a time decades ago when we would have identified ourselves as joggers, Um, and even runners, but today we walk. Um, The good news is that behind our house, uh, we are adjacent to the Nantahala National Forest, and over the 30 years that we have lived in this place, we have developed a trail system with various loops that go through the the forest there, and um, some shorter, some longer. Um, We have a mile and a half loop, a three mile loop, and we usually walk once in the morning and walk once in the evening. And believe it or not, we actually average about six miles a day of walking. More recently, we have um, started to consider the possibility of extending these daily hikes to something a little bit larger. And actually been thinking about hiking the Appalachian Trail. Granted, it's just thinking right now, but... Um, <laughs> But, and it's something we've actually hiked different portions of the trail um, over the years, short portions. But we have in our midst someone this morning I'd like to point out who has hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail, 2,190.9 miles. Um, and that is Susan Kettles, who actually um, helps with our signing interpretation here in front of you. And yes, that's not any small feat, and it's worthy of your applause, 2,190 miles. What's interesting, if, if you actually walk six miles a day for 365 days per year, you're walking, how many of you can do the math that quickly, 2,190 miles, coincidentally. So I use that as the confirmation that this is exactly what we're supposed to be moving into is this consideration of possibly hiking the the Appalachian Trail. Um, As we've begun this virtual exploration, um, we've read some books, we've watched YouTube videos, and we've been online to try to learn more about the the AT, the Appalachian Trail. And I want to share just a couple of quick fun facts with you that... um, Folks who hike it through continuously are called through hikers, and they typically do this in a period of about five to six months. 
It's about 150 to 180 days consecutively, with some breaks perhaps in between. But the fastest known hike to this point, just occurred recently, of the Appalachian Trail, occurred in just over 41 days. 41 days. That's averaging over 53 miles of hiking each day and every day for 41 days. The oldest person to hike the Appalachian Trail just recently again, this past fall, was completed by an individual 83 years old. That's impressive. Impressive still is the youngest person who actually completed the trail this past fall also started hiking as a four-year-old and finished as a five-year-old with his family, I might add, but, but finished, <laughs> finished the trail at age five, 2,190 miles. So it's no small deal when folks decide to undertake hiking of the Appalachian Trail. So, so far, we're in the research, exploratory, reading, and thinking stage. I just want to let you know we're doing really great so far. (laughs) But we are at a crossroads of a sort. We are at the point where we're, we're not necessarily making an absolutely hard and fast conviction of choice, but we're at a crossroads where we have an opportunity to either passively maintain a status quo, which involves hiking daily, these loop trails, essentially walking in circles in the woods every day, or we have an option to consider, which is actively aspiring to something considerably more. We have the opportunity to transform these daily walks that we have been so committed to over the last few years and transform that into something significantly more. And that's what I would like for us to be able to consider this morning as as we look into God's Word is to explore this concept of transformation. What does that look like? What does it feel like? What does it live like, most importantly, And so we're we're going to look at a couple of passages, but I want to point out before we do that that we're actually in a season of of transformation. If you think about it, the Christmas season marks a beginning point, and that's what transformation is, just to back up just for a second. Transformation is moving or changing or transitioning from a beginning point to a destination or perhaps a completion whatever it it might be. And in between is the opportunity to experience some form of transformation. So the season that we're in right now, Christmas, marks a beginning point. As we celebrate the birth, we commemorate the birth of Christ, obviously marking the beginning point of his life here on earth, and, and his existence up until the point of his completion here on earth, which is marked by his crucifixion and then by his resurrection. In between that period of birth to his completion is a period of 33 years. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says that during that period that Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, 
and in favor with God and man. In a similar way, spiritually speaking, we have a beginning point, a birth point at which we can point to often and say, this is the point where my faith, my commitment, my decision to follow Christ as my Lord and Savior personally has a beginning point. Our completion, as we tend to think of it, we look forward to this time in eternity that we might spend with God and Christ in heaven. In the middle portion, the time in between, we have this option that we can comfortably maintain a status quo or we can grow, we can mature, we can advance with progress along this journey that we call life, but this journey that we also often call our Christian walk, interestingly enough. It's a period of potential, and really underscore that word, potential transformation. But what, is, what does it look like? Well, it looks a lot like Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses, and you should have an opportunity to, to read this with me or hear this as I share this with you. This is beginning with Romans 12, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. As Paul writes this, he's just completed writing what we have designated as chapter 11. And during that portion of his letter to the Christian church of Rome, he has emphasized and encouraged the Christians in Rome to celebrate the gift of mercy they have received in salvation from Christ. So he's recognizing that salvation is this beginning point. And then in the transition from 11 to 12, he's asking a question or making a, a presentation essentially that says, what should we expect of our faith and our faith journey beyond this beginning point, beyond this start, beyond salvation, what should we expect in this relationship we share with Christ? It's at this point if, and, and don't consider this sacrilegious, please, but at this point, if the gospel were an infomercial, and Paul were the spokesperson for the infomercial of the gospel, this would be the point where the presentation is made, the build-up is there, the excitement, anticipation of whatever the product or whatever it is may be, and then Paul says, stop. But wait, there's more. 
And that's the exciting part. Salvation is worthy of our celebration, but we dare not stop there. But wait, there's more. Certainly Christ came for our salvation, as is stated in another letter by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where he says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is true. And it's important to understand, again, that salvation marks this beginning point, a starting point. But you also can and should expect more beyond that point. Beyond salvation, Jesus shared this from the book of John, verse, or chapter 10, verse 10. He said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or depending on your translation, it may say, and have life abundantly. And so what then does this full and abundant life in Christ look like? Well, let's go back into to chapter 12 and look at this a little more closely. First, this full and abundant life is sacrificial. We see this clearly in the first part of the passage. There's personal cost involved, which may not be appealing, but when you realize that the benefit that comes from it is this transformation, it makes the cost so, so worthwhile. This is reinforced in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, when Jesus said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, and note here, it's not just a believer, but wants to be a disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The second aspect of a full and abundant life is that it is countercultural. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, be it fad or fashion, opinion or perspective. As is mentioned in 1 John chapter 2, 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Third, a full and abundant life is transformative. We expect to grow. We seek to grow. We pray to grow. In the same way as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, we too in our journey should be, our journey should be marked by growth, by maturity, by progress as we move from our beginning point when faith is established and move toward our completion. This is mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A fourth aspect of this life abundant is renewing. Old things will be made new, specifically in our minds and in our thoughts, 
This is captured in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Fifth is discernment. If we apply and abide in the previous aspects of this abundant life, then we can expect that we can test and approve what the good and pleasing and perfect will of God is. We're no longer subject to just trying to figure it out based on our will and our understanding. We actually begin to adopt and understand the will of God. How powerful is that? And then finally is a concept of humility, that we're not prideful, but we are sober and honest in our self-assessment. This is seen in James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Our faith is certainly about salvation. There's no doubt about that, and that's not the point of what this message is, but the point is this, that our faith also should include transformation, which is also known as sanctification, a big theological word that just simply means that being placed in the process of being made holy. Spiritually, we, we learn to walk way before we might set out to do a through-hike of the Appalachian Trail. And as we, we are learning to walk, we are infants, and we behave as infants. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. We have two grandchildren, and they are the joy of our lives. What's true in their ages are four and one. What, what we've noticed is that in the life of the one-year-old currently, everything that she does, everything, is joyful, it's adored, it's celebrated, everything that she does is, is incredibly special. The four-year-old, on the other hand, has different expectations associated with the fact that he's now four. The expectations have changed as he has grown up, even at the age of four. Mind you, both are still perfect, <laughs> but they're both in different places. One's still very much in the form of an infant and growing and learning just the very, very basics. The other, who has actually grown up in four years' time, has different expectations, as we should have different expectations of our children, our grandchildren, and even, especially, of ourselves. We should be willing to change as we are intended to grow and to mature. In the same way that we are developed in our faith, from non-believer to believer, from believer to follower, from follower to disciple, and then on further, we move beyond a position of being childish 
and our selfish ways, and we begin to move into a more of an others-oriented perspective. And it's here I'd like to transition a little bit and, and talk about pronouns. No, not, not those pronouns. But pronouns as they relate to our faith, our faith-related pronouns. It's another way of considering this transform, transformative process that we are moving through and our focus from ourself to more of an other's um, mindset is to transition from the pronouns of me, my, and mine to more of a we, our, and ours. From our selfish ways toward a concern for a larger community. And that community could be comprised of family or friends or others, just in general. This is affirmed in John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And while loving our friends is a noble and notable advancement beyond simply loving ourselves, there's another pronoun that we need to consider. But before we consider that, I'd like for us to consider the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment, he responded with this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like unto it, and that is to love others as we love ourselves. Notice that the greatest commandment transitions in a different direction than we might think, typically about our own transition or transformation. This transition that is God's or God's perspective is from God to others and then to us. We tend to reverse that. And for God, let's use the pronoun the or thy or thine, in keeping with the, the rich tradition of the King James. Our tendency is to move in progression from me to we to thee. God's preference, actually no, God's commandment is that we move in the opposite direction, beginning with loving him first, then loving others as we love ourselves. And it's important to understand that with the godly thee, it changes everything. It reverses the process that we might think that we should be moving through from me to we to thee and transitions that from a godly perspective from thee to we to me. Okay, so we've moved now from a theoretical dis discussion about what transformation and renewal might look like. And we've talked a little bit about the theological background, the verses that support this. But what about the practical? How does this actually live out? How does this play itself in our lives? How should it? And I'd like for us, as we consider this, to, to think about the two primary motivators that, that I think exist within our lives that, that motivate us more powerfully than anything else. And that is love and fear. And what I'd like to do is, is look at each of these, love and fear, in the context of this transformative process that we move through from me to we to thee. 
We'll first start with fear. A me-based fear might have to do at its most basic level with just simply pure survival. Going back to the AT, the Appalachian Trail that I've yet to hike, except for portions of it, I know enough about the AT to know that the one consideration I probably am most fearful about is bears, because they're out there, especially in our local area of the Smokies, bears are prevalent. So I tend to think if I were to be so brave to hike the Appalachian Trail and I had this very thin nylon wall of my tent that separated me from the great outdoors, my greatest fear would perhaps be that there would be a bear on the other side of that nylon wall. It has to do with survival, our most basic instinct. But a me-first mentality, a me-first fear could also have to do with trying to take care of my plans, my schedule, my desires, my needs, whatever it is that might reflect a a self-absorption with a concern that I have that I need to take care of myself first and foremost can also be part of a me-based fear. Let's move in the transition now to a we-based fear. Beyond basic survival, this, this fear has more to do with relationships. A we-based fear might have to do with family or, or friends or others in this broader category of, of people beyond us. And this, I would say, that if you are a parent and you have endured the teenage years, the 16th year in particular, with keys and cars and curfews, you understand what this we-based fear might look and feel like. And I won't go into the details, but I just, I remember as if it were yesterday, and I wish it were it was, just because that would make me younger, but, but I remember feeling the sense of angst and tension and fear as whichever of our three children had just turned 16 was yet to arrive home. Curfew had passed, and I was starting to go down the trail of imagining all the worst possibilities that could only be alleviated when I could hear the rumble of the car on the gravel road or see the headlights that would extend beyond the hill that would would tell me it's okay that my child was safe. And that's a very real fear. It's powerful. And that fear is one that sounds a little more encouraging, a little more acceptable, but, but we can actually also turn into a they mindset. It's one thing to be concerned and care for the safety of our family and our friends and others, but when we sets up a they, they can become the target of our anger. They can become the other side of our frustration. They can become the reason for our division. If left unchecked, they can be vilified they can be demonized. They can even be declared to be the enemy. 
And so we need to move quickly beyond that type of a mindset to a the-based fear. A the-based fear, which is actually better stated as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is totally different than a me-based fear or a we-based fear. This is a fear that the Lord provides in a transformational reversal. It's away from a fear of injury. It's away from a fear of survival. It's away from a fear of death. It's away from a fear of broken relationships. This is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's all about love. It's about respect. It's about reverence. And it's about transformation. The powerful transformation of our innermost desires. This is what comes from the fear of the Lord. Switch to the perspective of what does love look like? In the context of this transition or transformation that moves from me to we to thee, what does love look like? Well, love, me-based love, looks a lot like the Greek word eros, which has to do with personal pleasure, with personal satisfaction, taking care of my personal needs, a love of self, and that's a problem if that's where we still are, even after our salvation experience, if that's where we rest, that's where we're comfortable, is in this Eros love, then there's a disconnect that has occurred because we're not intended to stay there. Neither are we supposed to stay in the we-based love, which is represented in the two words, the Greek words, storgi, first, is, is a word that describes love of family, Familial ties, be it immediate or extended family, storgy is a love that we understandably have for our family. The second Greek word for this we-based love is philia. Philia has to do more with the love or affection that we have for our friends. Finally, as we move from a me to we to the-based love, the the-based love, again, is powerful. It is transformative. It is overwhelming in the sense that it is so beyond us. The-based love is found in the, the Greek word agape that many of us have heard about, many of us may have studied. But agape is different because it is absolutely unconditional, unlike us who are highly conditional in the way that we respond to situations and to people. This is an unconditional love. It's beyond us. Only through God and God's Holy Spirit are we able to be inspired to the level that we might even come close to agape love. Agape is true compassion. Agape is true empathy. Agape is a love that can even be extended to an enemy. Transformation and renewal are not prerequisites for our salvation. And I want to make that really clear, because if we reverse these, 
we can become guilty of trying to think that we can work our way into salvation. Salvation comes first in chapter 11. In chapter 12 in Romans, there is this concept of transformation, not being conformed. This transformation, though, is not a prerequisite. It is essential. If we are to live the fullness, the maturity, the completeness, the abundance that God has intended for us, transformation is absolutely essential. As Paul encouraged the Roman believers at the time, yes, celebrate God and celebrate his gift of mercy as it relates to salvation, but don't stop there. But wait, there's more. Transformation or a transformed life results in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is not born of a sapling. The fruit of the Spirit comes by way of a mature tree. And neither should we stop short in our pursuit of what God intends for us, just as no thru-hiker that I've ever heard of, anyway, would ever set out to hike the Appalachian Trail and then stop at Springer Mountain in North Georgia and set up camp there and reside there for six months and then walk off and expect to have had a complete experience of hiking and have the adventure of the Appalachian Trail. It's just not the way it works. But neither should we expect to rest solely on the laurels of our salvation. We should expect, we should hope for, we should aspire to something so much greater than just that. As great as that is, there is more. But wait, there's more. So as we begin this last song of worship, I want to offer a proposition to anyone who might be here who has not yet begun this journey, this, this walk, this Christian walk, or dare I say even this Christian hike, this adventure that's offered with Christ, with him clearly as our Lord and Savior. If that journey has not yet begun for you, I want to invite you to meet me here this morning, here at the front of the church, after the service, and let's talk about what's needed for you to take the next step of this journey so that you can look forward to the fullness, the abundance, the full transformation of this life in Christ. There's no better time than to begin that journey than today, right now. For the rest of us, for those of us who've already begun our journey, whether it be recently or whether it be sometime in a distant decade past, if you find yourself in your faith walk, walking more on circles, in circles, or if the scenery seems to never change, then I want to encourage you to take a step this morning, literally, 
in a direction toward the fullness and the abundance that Christ offers to you. Step toward this altar this morning with a commitment to begin anew and afresh this walk, this journey that has been promised to us. But we have to take steps in that direction in order for it to occur. So I would encourage you that the altar is open as, as we hear this last worship song. You can remain in your seats if you want, but if you want to actively take a step in the direction of this new and revitalized walk, this journey that you have to look forward to with Christ until your completion, then the altar is open and you are welcome.